You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. Ilhan Omar, welcome to Conversations with Shonda. Thank you so much for having me, Shonda. Absolutely. As we get into this conversation, I just want to say I feel like I've known you forever. Yeah. Very true. Mm -hmm. And I can't um, even put a timeline on it. I can't. It feels that long. It feels very long. And as a result of that, I feel like we have gotten to witness the evolution of each other's leadership. Yeah. And so I just want to start with that because I think I know the catalytic moment that got you to run for office. But I wonder if it is the same moment that actually, in fact, got you Mm -hmm. into running for your first office. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe other people's observing had that catalytic moment in their heads. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I sort of feel like it, 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 it. There was no real like for me. There wasn't really a, a moment. You know, I I was also always really um, thought of myself like as an educator and someone who was very much interested in information, getting people the information they needed, getting people to participate in society. You know, obviously my dad and grandfather were big on democracy and this grand idea of of participation and having a voice. Um, And so they were the catalyst of me starting to become an organizer, a uh, civic engagement organizer at the age of 14. Oh, wow. And, um, and I, you know, that, that moment, I think, for me being able to take my grandfather and sort of be um, a support system for him because he didn't speak the English language, but he was so eager to participate in our democracy, um, was a moment that I, I realized uh that, you know, so many of our elders are so much more knowledgeable than we are or that we could ever be. Um, But as, you know, you go through different communities, you realize that there are barriers to access for a lot of our elders and the systems that they want to continue to participate in sometimes are not as welcoming Mm -hmm. and as accessible. And so for my grandfather, obviously, was the language barrier um, and so I kind of wanted to, to get rid of that language barrier for a lot of the elders within my community that were like my grandfather. And so worked with other young organizers like Nimco and others mm-hmm. to transform, I think, the way in which our caucuses were conducted um, and, and make them have resources in Somali, have translators be in that room there, develop training materials um, and, you know, do the uh, 101 on, you know, um, representation matters, conversations, get them to understand the different levels of representation. I, I think through that process and then, be, you know, becoming a nutrition educator later on, I realized that a lot of the work that I was doing in community as an educator um, had to do with policy. Mm. And I realized that a lot of the work that I was doing in like electoral politics had to do with representation. And if you do not have people who have your lens, who understand the challenges that you're going through, and as my grandfather used to say, in a representative democracy, you want to elect people who have fluency in your day-to-day struggles, that I kind of transitioned from, you know, being the person who was like, you have to participate 
to being the person like you have to participate because of A, B and C, right? Like if we're experiencing housing challenges, you know, we need to vote for this champion um, on housing. Like if you're experiencing challenges with food deserts, we have to vote for, you know, this candidate who's going to be a champion in creating access. Um, and so that I think kind of was the place I felt comfortable with until 2013 um, when I helped run uh, the campaign of Congress uh, Council Member Andrew Johnson. And he was like, after we won, come work for me as my policy aide. And I love that opportunity because I got to work on a lot of policies um, that, you know, I think helped move our city forward. Um, but I also knew that there's that there was more that should be done on a state level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the time we were being represented by somebody who, you know, was was a legend, um, but also, you know, was there for 44 years. Um, and sometimes when you are in the system for too long, you become complacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that fluency starts to disappear. Right. Um, and I worked on a couple of campaigns, try to get new energy in that seat. And we weren't successful. And, you know, a lot of my friends who I also worked in um, uh, in training women to run for office, like Lulid Mola and Erin Filardi and Habon Abdullah were like, you seem really invested mm-hmm. um, in, in your community having, you know, a voice that represents. And at the time, you know, it was... The district encompassed Cedar Riverside, which is where I grew up. And I was living on Riverside Park at the time. Um, and so they were like, you should just you should just do it. And like any other women, I had all kinds of excuses on why. Right. Right. I, I shouldn't be running for office. I had young children. I had a job that was with government and would have to leave and, you know, find, you know, so mm-hmm. I was just coming up with all kinds of excuses. And they were like, well, we'll help babysit. We'll make dinners. You know, we'll try to get you a job that can work with you running for office and all of this stuff. And I think it was sort of. Uh, a God's way of saying, like, this is your time. You should, you should yeah. do it. And I think that's why the the motto for that campaign was like time for Ilhan because you know it right. sort of was it it sort of felt like a calling at that moment. Yeah, I think um, there's so many components of where I could go with this. So one, my moment for you was actually at the Brian Coyle Center and when the caucus was a little challenging. Yeah. And so in my mind, it was sort of it was sort of chaotic, right? Yeah. Because people's sort of care for the democratic process and the process, like it was just a convergence of a number of things that ended up with sort of a a challenging evening. <laughs> Would you call it well, that? That's an interesting, uh, that's, a, that's a Minnesota way to describe it. Was. It was the an night. interesting night. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean that, that caucus uh, was and is to this day, I think, my most challenging moment. Um, not, not only were we not able to manage the caucus um, and, and the energy that people were bringing into it, but I also ended up being physically assaulted and hurt. Right. I got a, I ended up with a concussion with neck lacerations and um, all, all kinds of scars. But it was also, I think, the the moment and I think one of the only moments in in my life that I'd felt like 
like I don't I don't need this, <laughs> right? Like I don't I, I this is a this is work that I do as a volunteer and um, and I don't I don't want to do this. Uh, but it was it was that night going home to my two young children, um, my two oldest, but they were very young at the time. Uh, and and, you know, waking up the next morning and getting them ready for school and them saying, why aren't you ready? And I was like, I just I just want to check out for a bit. And they were like, no, mm-hmm. you don't get to do that. The people who want you to check out need to see that you will never check out, that they don't get to bully you in being a public servant. They don't get to bully you in showing up for your community. They don't get to bully you into not fighting for the things that you care about because that's what you told us. Right. Um, and so they were like, "You get dressed. <laughs> we're, yeah. all, we're all going. Um, and, you know, I have kept that energy um, since then. And I, and I know that for me it is not only about pushing through the challenges that I experience, but also pushing through so that my kids and others uh, know that you can push through regardless of how heavy uh, the challenge feels. Thank you for sharing that because I think that in leadership, it is nearly impossible to navigate it without without a squad, right? <laughs> without without yeah. support. Yeah. And um, you talked about your grandfather. You talked about your father, which I do want to talk about your father. Yeah. Um, raising daughters in a non-gendered neutral world. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean to be a leader in that space? Yeah. You talk about um, really the expectation and the anticipation um, of of your children, but also the women, right? And often we have these people in our lives that see it before we see it. Yeah. And I imagine like what you just shared, it's like your elders saw it before you saw it, right? Your children saw it when yeah. they needed when you when they needed to for you. Yeah. And then the women seen the possibility of your leadership yeah. that that nudged you forward. How important has that been? Oh, incredibly, incredibly um, important. I think I have been blessed in ways um, that that I, I can't even really put into words to have always been surrounded by people that, that see the potential in me, that believe that I am capable of things that I, you know, alone couldn't dream of being capable of. Uh, people who see me in rooms that I you know, might not think myself of being in. And, you know, that was Shelley Sherman, who who was my boss uh, when I worked for the University of Minnesota's extension department as a nutrition educator, um, saying, you know, you could help write this curriculum. You could help go with me to teach across the country other um, educators, you know, what it means to um, uh, the educate the communities um, about healthy eating. It was Brenda Johnson, even back then when I was in high school, who was like, I need you to be part of this leadership committee to bring our communities together when Edison was experiencing its most violent mm-hmm. uh, environment back in, in the 90s. Um, you know, and it's obviously, you know, people like Habon, um, who you know, got tired of seeing, you know, just men in our community um, taking up space uh, in, especially in leadership positions saying, you know, we need to huddle Mm -hmm. um, and I need you to be part of that huddle. Um, And so 
I, you know, and obviously with with being blessed by being raised by my dad and and grandfather, who raised all of us girls um, with the boys in with the same expectations um, uh, and saying there isn't anything that you can do that your you know that your brother uh, that that you can't do that your brother can. Um, and and that I think the internalized liberation that that mm. provided for us has always made it easy for us to to fight for our external liberation. Yeah. So you said uh, fluency of community, mm-hmm. and you know I often talk about like proximity to community, but yeah. you can be proximate and not fluent. Yeah. And so why is that so important in terms of representation? Yeah. I mean, a struggle is not something you can teach. Um, you know, you you can, you know, study public policy. Um, you can, you know, volunteer at a center. Um, you can't unlearn your privilege in the way in which um, somebody who has experienced deep disparities um, can speak to, you know, what, what, it, what it means to not have privilege, right? Um, and so for me, I, I always recognize that. And, and when I'm in spaces where I have less fluency than someone else, I always want them to take the lead in those conversations because I think that there is something authentic when we can speak to our lived experiences that allow for there to be urgency in addressing um, those those challenges. So, you know, I... Obviously, I'm someone who, before the age of eight, grew up with real comfort um, and then had experienced war, had lost everything and lived in a refugee camp, experienced hunger in ways that people can't imagine, you know, lost educational opportunities for those pivotal years. Um, And so I know that coming to this country, I was provided opportunities, but it was still very challenging, right? We still had to live in public housing. We still um, had a dad who had to work multiple jobs in order just have the bare minimum um, that we had to overcome the educational gap, severe gap of those four years of missed education to try to graduate on time for our age, right? And my old, you know, my older siblings didn't get that opportunity. But Sahara and I, you know, she had a, a two-year timeline to graduate high school, you know, and I, I had um, a, a six-year, um, a, a five-year uh, timeline to finish middle school and 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 high school, and so so we, you know, we were on this sort of uh, a real journey, and we got to experience really what it means to 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 have bootstraps to pull yourself up with, and what it means when you don't have those, and you got to it on your own and mm. and find the straps and the boots right. um, and and get going and so I am cognizant of of the, the 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 human challenges that that exist for for people when we do not create opportunities that are understanding of the situations mm-hmm. and the different lived experiences that people um, are are coming with because 
an equity lens can only really be created by the people who actually understand and and um, have benefited from what it means to um, have equity. Yeah. You have experienced a lot of life. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, what I'm thinking on and actually probably more deeply resonating with, even though I know a lot about you, is that you were a child that experienced war. Um, you had such disruption to the interesting event at caucus night. Um, there's been a theme of threat to your existence. Yeah. And so what we see are the threats yeah. to your existence and yeah. the ways that they come up and um, the, the, the privilege people think they have to attack and to do that in ways that are um, very real. There's real impact to those, those attacks. Um, there are people that are, are challenged to even just find their voice in, in, in small ways, right? Like I think the choice of, of being able to safely voice what you need, like that's not an assumption that everybody has that level of safety. Right. Um, but you have pushed through in ways that have sometimes not been easy or safe. Why? <laughs> Why not just go somewhere and work in an office that where no one knows your name, if that's possible at this point? Um, I think it's knowing that people are invested um, in silencing my voice. I think there is mm. something in in that, right? Because I... I, I don't find my voice threatening. I don't find my voice unwelcomed. And so for those that do, I tend to think that it has to do with the fact that they know I tell truths that they are not interested in being told. Um, one of the um, funniest um moments I think in 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 my existence so far was the uh, sort of obsession that the former president developed mm -hmm. in just singling me out constantly and I remember dad being like there's 435 members of congress and there's 100 members in the Senate. Like, what in the world? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't have real power. You don't, you're not the chair of committee. You don't have seniority in any sort of way. You're like a junior of junior. <laughs> right. um, and you're also, like, very marginalized, you know? Um, like, why is he so obsessed? And, and, and I think it, it really does have a lot to do with, you know, obviously I represent so many marginalized voices. Um, and, and in that, all of those marginalized voices are amplified mm. in a way that I think, you know, when you're only one unique voice, it's not. Mm. Um, and so I think that's what people are threatened by, that there are so many people that could see themselves in mm. me and know when I speak, you know, it's like, okay, here's a, here's a black woman speaking for us about our plight. Here is an immigrant 
person speaking about our plight. He was a refugee person, right? Like he was a person who grew up in poverty. So there's like all of these fluencies, right? Um, back to what my grandpa said that that I have that people are able to attach themselves to because, you know, I don't, I'm I'm not somebody who's like coming to your community and like volunteered once and like now it's like. You know, this community is experiencing da 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 da, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't need um, a, a briefing on, you know, what a marginalized community is experiencing. Like, there is a connection that I have um, with with all of the communities that I ex- that I represent, uh, and so it is it is easy mm-hmm. um, for me to personally connect with their struggle and to give voice to that struggle. Yeah. Before we pivot to some of the uh, policy work that you're doing, you are on a flight regularly. You are I mean, I have, you know, a couple 12 hour days and like count me out for the weekend. (laughs) I need rest. Um, So how are you caring for yourself? Like what are your practices of care to sort of maintain the demand? And it's not just the man. It's it's you're public. Right. And so you're some in some ways always on. So do you have practices? Because a lot of people are really struggling with a level of just fatigue of the work, the weight of responsibility. But really, this has become an essential question of of self-care. So I just want to see what your response is to how you are caring for you. Um, Well, I mean, I I think for me, um, you know, there's work that feels like work and there is work that kind of feels like self-care. Um, and so I try to balance those two, you know, like, like yesterday we almost ended the day at dance city, um, which is a a dance youth dance group, um, hosted out of North high and it's these young girls, they won a national championship. I did a congressional record for them. I went and there was this cute four year old. She was trying to teach me, you know, dances and I was revitalized by that, right? Like, and so that, like that soul feeding, that's kind of like hanging out with your little niece type of thing. Yeah. But I'm also a mom, you know, I get, I get a lo- some time with my kids that is almost, um, you know, at this point, because there's just little time um, with with family, any any moment with them is a reset um, for me. But other than that, I, I take long walks. Um, I love to hike. Um, I watch Bollywood movies. Uh, they're 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 long, dramatic. There's a lot of joy and singing, mm-hmm. um, and it's you know three hours that you're basically checked out of of the of the world. So yeah. um, those are ways I think I try to reset my body and and brain and try to um, obviously get sleep when when I can. Yeah, I think that resonates. I probably do that too, but I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. So like even when I have a late dinner, yeah. it's someone that I'm doing work with, but yeah. I really, really enjoy them. So it's yes. like catching up with someone that you deeply care about yeah. and want to support. Yeah. So I, I get that. Yeah. I get and so that. like one of the things that we used to do was these, these um, round tables with uh, constituent groups that I represent. So we had like an African-American uh, table. We had um, Jewish constituent table. We had La- Latino American table. And so we've decided that like it is better to just do happy hours. Yeah. And so now, you know, those tables have become more of a 
community gathering spaces for us where it is, yes, we're checking in on work, we're updating each other on what I'm doing on a federal level, what's happening in community, um, but it's also like fun and light. Um, like everybody is in there, you know, trying to take notes and all of that stuff. It's just being in community and, you know, those hours don't feel like I'm working. It's like yeah. getting to hang out with friends and, you know, community. So there, the, we've we've incorporated, I think, a lot of those kind of things to make the 14 hour days um, here uh, uh, when I'm at home. Um, feel less like work um, yeah. and and feel more like, you know, being home. Mm-hmm. For the people that are listening, I don't know if you can hear uh, Johan smiling, but <laughs> as you're smiling, I'm like, this work must, it gives you joy, clearly, yeah. right? It feels really demanding, but yeah. like you get joy from from doing this work? I do. I do. I, I have really um, incredible staff. You know, it feels like family, um, uh, like over 90% of my staff have been with me um, since I first got elected. Uh, and so, you know, we, again, we try to um, do our briefings um, and check-ins to, through, like, with food and, you know, try to have a lot of um, time that we spend together. Well, yes, we're checking in about work, but it also, like, feels like you're just hanging out with your family at a, mm-hmm. at a dinner table. And so... Um, you know, there are a lot of my colleagues that are, that constantly talk about fatigue. Yes, I feel fatigue at times, but my work doesn't feel exhausting. Exhausting. Um, And and I I don't get to carry a lot of the burden and the anger and the frustration um, because we are in constant spaces where people are smiling and are joyful. And, um, you know, um, even, even the days where like our phones are filled with like death threats and um, hate. It's like, okay, well, you know, we're going to end the week with our highs and lows and then we're going to like go out and like hang out, you know, for Mm -hmm. for the night. And so um, there's at least that to look forward to on those weeks where it's hard. I don't even want to talk about death threats, but I know I've had a few in my life, too. Yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. It's an unfortunate part of the work. Yeah. Um, but I do want to talk about a little bit about policy. And so, you know, as as a, you know, long term resident of, of North Minneapolis, um, I know that you recently um, supported some organizations with earmarks. Can you share a bit about that? Yeah, a couple of years ago, Congress brought back um, what used to be called earmarks. Now they call them community funding projects. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was sort of um, approach them with the with the lens of, you know, who in our community isn't being fully supported, right? Like where um, can we uh, do this work for people who desperately need um, these resources where it could even be um, like seed funding and then mm-hmm. it becomes a catalyst for them to to get more. And so we've um, uh, supported um, Ruth's, Roots Birthing Center, which is, I think, one of the uh, first um, birthing centers led by a black woman. Um, it is uh, midwifery and like it is just a beautiful space um, where moms get to give birth in a, such a supportive environment. Um, but it's also uh, part of the work that we are doing um, federally in addressing the um, black maternal mortality rate that 
um, that has been so devastating for our community because we know that we are more four times more likely to die in childbirth than our white counterparts. And so that is also part of that policy mm-hmm. work that we're doing, that we're able to also, you know, put money um, towards that, that effort. Um, and, you know, obviously I've talked a lot about like being a nutritionist and like working in, in that space. And so we wanted to help fund some some food programs because obviously North Minneapolis, everybody knows, um, is a food desert. It's, it's a space where there's a lot of um, challenges. So we've given money to um, North Youth Farm um, uh, and we've given uh, money to Shiloh um, uh, Shelf, uh, um, food, food Shelf. Um, we've given money to Neon, which uh, actually the million dollars we gave them became the catalyst for this big funding campaign that they eventually uh, developed. And I think next month we're going to go see the progress that they're making in the space. But that one actually funds um, a, 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 a commercial kitchen hmm. for um, food entrepreneurs uh, who are looking to have an environment where they're not paying a lot of money to be able um, to to cater and, and run their business um, and, and run their businesses. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because um, uh, no doubt anytime I have someone that talks about access to money, people call and say, how can I access that money? Yeah. And <laughs> I usually say, uh, <laughs> you know, like, let me like try to help you navigate yeah. this. And it is a highly competitive uh, opportunity. Clearly, you have to negotiate that with, yeah. with your colleagues in Congress. But, yeah. you know, if someone, um, what did you call them? It's not your Community funding project. Community funding project. So yeah. how does how does someone get to understand that process? And yeah. when, what would you advise them if they hear this and they're like, hey, I think I might want or need one of those? Yeah, so actually they should reach our office right away. Um, so they could be added to like one of the seminars that we do so that when the when the time comes for like um, the, uh, the application, uh, that they are prepared for the, the things that they need, um, because the the way in which it gets rolled out is 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 really rushed. Um, you know, it's like we only have about a month uh, when we get the categories of funding that we could ask for and what community projects can mm-hmm. be funded to when the application is okay. submitted. Um, and so getting in touch with our office right, right now before um, fiscal year 2025 um, uh, starts is, is the best way to do that because we, we get a lot of people who like reach out the week before it closes and, <laughs> okay. and we're like, okay, these are the categories. None of the programs that you're talking about fit into it. And obviously with Republicans in leadership right now, um, they've they've really narrowed down the the, you the know, categories. Uh, the category, so we're we're not able to fund a lot of uh, racial equity or um, uh, programs that that address the disparities that our communities are are experiencing. Um, so hopefully, knock on wood, we get back into the majority and we can um, continue, you know, go back to funding real sure. community projects. Yeah. Speaking of uh, disparity, uh, we have had a long and challenging history of policing and, and community safety. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't own that here in Minnesota, but we certainly have had a significant challenge of ensuring um, that our communities are safe in multiple ways. 
How do you see criminal justice or community safety evolving, right? There was a lot of pressure, um, particularly after George Floyd's murder, for some advancement on policy at the federal level. Um, Do you see those opportunities coming uh, quickly enough? And for those that are still working in this area, what would you say to them um, that's ahead that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, I mean, obviously, policy change has been challenging, um, you know, with the, the weak majorities that we, we had after George Floyd. Um, we had a lot of challenges with the Senate, uh, and so we weren't able to pass a lot of the policy reforms we wanted. Um, but we were able to get the resources um, to help our communities um, invest in um, in healing, in reimagining, you know, public safety in a holistic way. Um, and so one one of the pieces of legislation we passed was the bipartisan gun violence prevention legislation. And there was a lot of uh, community violence uh, interruption money. There was um, money to deal with trauma within our communities. There was money to make sure that um, those who have been impacted by gun violence uh, then themselves do not become um, uh, offenders. Uh, the, yeah. the offenders. So um, we've worked closely with Minneapolis and Hennepin County with uh, partnerships um, with uh, multiple hospitals um, to, to implement some of those programs. We've seen um, uh, we've brought resources back to invest in um, behavioral mental um, units. Um, we've funded um, programs that create mobile clinics. Um, and so I, it is it is a, a long path before we get to where we know we need to be. Um, but I think since George Floyd, there has been many programs implemented by a lot of the cities that have been impacted, you know, whether it's Minneapolis or Brooklyn Center, they might not have had the policy changes that they've wanted, that I wanted, mm-hmm. um, that the resources have been there to actually implement a lot of the programs that um, or policy changes that we were fighting for mm-hmm. without just creating the policy changes, which I'm fine yeah. with. Yeah, yeah. Because Minneapolis was able to create the public safety department that we were advocating yeah. for, um, they have been able to to have a lot of these units that respond to mental health and um, and and other crises without the presence of uh, police. They've had n- extreme successes. They there hasn't been um, a single case in in which um, the responders have been hurt. Um, so it's it's been really good, you know, especially mm-hmm. with the community collaboration um, sure. work uh, with some of the orgs as well. Yeah. Depending on, on what side you are sitting on, sometimes it's very challenging to see progress. Yeah. Right. It's like if it's not eliminated, you don't yeah. really see the progress. Yeah. But from the sounds of it, it sounds like we are making some progress. And some of that sits outside of policing and really yeah. more community centric. Would you express it that way? Yeah, I mean, I just um, had a conversation with uh, the Minneapolis police chief and he was telling me, you know, the the worst months um, in regards to homicide were November and December. Um, And, you know, so so those moments will exist 
And, you know, and obviously we still have uh, a gang problem that we have to address. You know, we we have gun trafficking. We have too many guns um, in, in our streets. We have to, you know, still go back to, you know, that that um, uh, neighborhood watch, you know, block watch type of um, mentality, recognizing that, you know, all the children in our community are our children. Um and 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 there is, I think, a lot of isolation um, that that has existed since uh, COVID. Um, but but I, yes, it, other matrix. There is progress mm-hmm. that we are making, and there's a lot of uh, resources that are floating around in in our community. Um, and and I I look forward to you know following the data to see what more um, is needed. But it's been a really cool partnership with the city. Uh, the county and a lot of our healthcare providers um, in in working with them to try to make sure that they have the federal resources that they need in order to implement some of the programs they're looking to implement in addressing public safety in our community. Sure. Another thing that I know you've worked on is um, missing and murdered black women and girls. Why is that work important for you and, and how big of an issue is it even? Oh, it is a it is a it is a huge, huge issue. Um, you know, I followed the work that Representative Ruth Richardson um, has been has done in in our state very closely, and looking at the at the data that com- came out of that in talking to not just victims but um, surviving families, we realized that this problem is not just happening in Minnesota. Mm. Uh, this problem is happening across the country, and it needed a federal legislation because every state should be able to get resources um, to, 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 to do the training that is necessary around bias. Because many of the families talked about, you know, Media bias. Oh yes, my goodness. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But, it, but but just police bias, yeah. right? Um so so doing training for that, right? Having the 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 resources and the connectivity to 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 create that communication plan um within the police department when somebody goes missing, um to do the data sharing across states, um, to have the data collection. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh, you know, we have the the whole Congressional Black Caucus, 60 strong um, uh, as co-sponsors of, of the legislation. Um, we have the same amazing um, advocates from the state that were able, that successfully passed and implemented um, the state version, uh, working with us uh, on a federal level. Uh, and and we want to at least if we're not able to pass legislation because these days it's just becoming harder and harder with a divided Congress. We want it to to have it be similar to what happened with the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, uh, where where the administration just decides to create this office mm-hmm. um, and invest the resources because our lives matter equally. Our girls and women should be seen and should be saved equally. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also, the EPA has really stepped up, and I know that often in 
um, urban communities and brown communities and poor communities, we don't often think about climate share, climate share. Why did I say that? Climate change (laughs) and um, environmental justice. But that's really important work as we look at longevity. We look at. Um, the environment that we are, are living in, the built environment, yeah. and, and other things that are impacting us. And yeah. so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about climate change because it was raining today in Minnesota. Yeah. It's very odd. I think I like it, but I'm also scared of it. I don't know how to feel emotionally about what's taking yeah. place in terms of weather um, and, the, and the climate things. And this is not my area, but how important um, is that? And are you doing work in that area? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously um, addressing climate change is is one that, you know, we one area we've been focused on. But another area I think that for for me that has been um, a a severe focus um, is addressing environmental justice uh, or environmental injustice. Um, And, you know, I think about the ways in which pollution has impacted the health and the well-being of um, black, brown, and indigenous communities in in my district uh, and across the state. That's why we fought for um, the uh, for the Inflation Reduction Act um, and for the infrastructure bipartisan infrastructure bill to have funding um, uh, embedded in not just creating policy change but actual resources. Um, you know, Minneapolis, North Minneapolis has uh, is 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 a place where um, there is the highest concentration of youth with asthma in the country. Right? Uh, we look at what you know some of the highways um, that have not only divided our communities, but that pollution, the ways in which it has impacted us, mm-hmm. um, and so. Uh, I am glad to see a lot of the resources that we fought now being um, now mm-hmm. coming to to our district. You know, earlier we w- we were talking about two million dollars that's uh, coming to the Minneapolis Foundation. They are going to be in partnership um, with uh, environmental justice groups, and they're going to do micro grants to 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 make sure that the people who are implementing and doing the work are within communities. Um, because they know best, right, right. Where, where they want to see those investments go. Um, and there's just, I mean, and that's just a small piece of the amount of resources that is trickling down in, into our communities. There's a renewed commitment um, from uh, on a state level with Governor Walls uh, and state legislators. Um, and so I'm, I am excited that in the two and a half years that we've had with President Biden, that we have been able to not talk about equity, to not talk about disparities in the ways in which it has been done before, but to actually create the investments, um, to close these disparities, to create the kind of equity that we've all wanted, um, and to do that work with community, mm-hmm. with their voice at the table. I was I just did a roundtable with you know, labor leaders with um, representatives on a state level, with county leaders, both in Hennepin and and Anoka, um, to talk about how do we extract the most amount of money um, from the federal government and make sure that it is coming to, to our state. And those investments are 
felt by by us. Mm -hmm. When you were talking about um, the asthma rate to North Minneapolis, I remember when I was working on uh, North Market, a health and wellness integrated grocery mm -hmm. store in North Minneapolis, our research uh, brought us to the understanding that um, there was a seven year life expectancy difference yeah. if you go three miles in any direction. Yeah. Right. This is a community that I'm from. I'm yes. working here. I'm living here. I'm breathing the air here. I'm drinking the water here. And I started thinking about all of the um, illnesses that have plagued my classmates yeah. um, and my children's classmates yeah. and wondering it's how it's much asthma. of an impact. Yeah, yeah it's, it's beyond high asthma. blood pressure. Mm -hmm. It's diabetes. Yeah. Because you think about it's not just the, the pollution, <laughs> right? It's also the health impacts of not having fresh fruits and vegetable accessible to you. Um, it is the stress and the trauma um, that many of these communities are dealing with. It is the exhaustion of having to work multiple jobs um, to care for your children. Uh, it's the, uh, the, the health toll uh, and, and the mental impact that it takes you know, when when you're living in a in an environment where there is violence um, and, you know, um, Traji P. Hansen, mm -hmm. I hope I'm saying her uh, name. Correctly. Taraji. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, we did a, a task force when I first got to, to Congress um, and it was on um, adolescent mental health, especially um, with our young boys who are experiencing suicide in mm. in high rates which nobody was talking about and she came in to bear witness because her son had dealt with mental health issues she had dealt with it i think her father had dealt with it and she told us this story of um and i can't remember if it was her story or if it was the story that she'd witnessed but this eight-year-old uh who um was walking to school and just witnessed somebody getting shot. They got on the bus. Nobody addressed it. They had to go to class and their life just went on. Mm -hmm. And she talked about the, the backpack of trauma that yeah. our young people are walking in um, into school with and the ways in which then in the school that they get re-traumatized, right? Because mm -hmm. if, they're, if they're acting up because of that trauma, then they're, you know, being sent home. Um, and so there's 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 all of these issues that are that are c compounded, uh, and a lot of our our young people that are growing up in in many of these impoverished neighborhoods don't have resources. And I forgot one of the other investments in North Minneapolis um, was North Commons. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. So yeah. we delivered three million dollars in order um, for for them to to do their rehab and, and expansion. Um, because we recognize that a lot of our young people need space mm -hmm. to go to and our park um, uh, facilities provide that that space for them. And, you know, um, it was it was one of the uh, I think one of the first community projects that we submitted that we were able to get funded. That's awesome. And yeah. thank you for that. When you were talking about the kids, what, what came up to me is another uh, North Market story. And I was driving home. And uh, someone had gotten shot. Mm -hmm. And I drove by it and I saw some kids witnessing. And um, I just couldn't do it. So I, I go around the corner, I come back, I get out my car, I yeah. walk up to them. And they um, did not seem visibly upset. Yeah. 
but they seemed actively interested in what was unfolding in front of them. And so I'm talking to them. I'm trying to get them to move away. I'm becoming traumatized because I'm in the middle of the scene and an ambulance shows up and one of the kids starts crying. And I'm like, well, why the heck are you crying now? Right. Like this guy's been laying here. Why are you crying now? And he said, that's where people go to die. And something clicked in my mind Mm -hmm. then around like right now he's not dead. Like I can see it, right? Like this interpretation of what healthcare looks like, the interpretation of what violence looks like, what, what has become numb and what's not numb. And I remember talking with them and saying, um, I had babies there. Like babies are born in hospitals. Like there's a number of things like we're going to, we're going to just send some really healthy healing thoughts. And I think like, where are some adults for you? And I just remember actively thinking about what does it look like for community members whose um, engagement with healthcare is only based in death and trauma as we're looking at addressing health disparities and what is our daily role Right. It's one thing for the systems to care for our kids. It's something else for us to care for our kids. And there's ways every day that we can be witness to trauma and we can help uh, talk through issues in ways that show um, our humanity, our understanding, our our testimony for lack of better word of the things that we have been able to live and thrive through. Um, despite its difficulty. And so, um, I don't know, you just raised that up. I can actually see their little faces and they're probably old now, but yeah, I could see their little faces. But but I I think that is, you know, I mean, I, I got a glimpse in, in my life, um, in, in growing up in, in a community where, um, there wasn't really a hierarchy in, in, in regards to, you know, race and, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and, and one thing that I realized when I came to, to the United States and, you know, was, was, um, starting to, to grow up, uh, as a black person in, in this country is that there is little reference for our lives. Um, and, and, and that was one of the, um, things that we explored in, in that task force, um, was like, where, where are the moments where these young people, um, should have been met with adults, um, and, and professional adults, right. Within their Mm. school system. If you are, if you are teaching in, in North Minneapolis, or if you're teaching, um, in in South Minneapolis, you know, are there are there spaces that are being created um, where kids, if they if they did have that experience that morning, um, they can stop in. Mm-hmm. And for me, when I was in high school, Brenda Johnson's office was that. I know Brenda yes, too. Yes, right. I like do. that. Yeah, was, like that yeah. was. Like we, you know, it, 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 it wasn't easy, like growing up in Cedar back then. I'm sure it's still not easy. Um, and, and, you know, and a lot of us were like freshly wounded. We'd just survived war. You know, we've only been in the country a year or two. Um, and we, and it, it, it mattered mm-hmm. um, that there was this room, that there was this woman um, who, you know, we like could see us in our face when we would walk in that, like that, that smile that you, you know, Ilhan to have 
it's not there. Um, yeah. And and it was like, you do you want to like bring breakfast into my office and chat? And 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 to this day, a lot of us feel her her presence. Um, and 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 I, I just. You know, and and I shared a lot of those those moments um, in 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 being part of that task force, um, because, and and there's a big report, um, but I, I also brought the the Congressional Black Caucus here. You did, yeah, yeah, because I, you know, one of my first talking points when I joined the Congressional Black Caucus was, I represent the worst place for Black people to live, and they were like, "What are you talking about?" And I was like, "The disparities are so acute." You know, and and so invisible, um, and acute and invisible, acute and invisible, right? Like they are buried in data, and if if we are just going to talk about numbers, then then my community needs you all. Um, but if we're gonna talk about you know like what you see in Minnesota, yes, we're progressive, we're doing great, you know, we're number one in everything. Um, but but that that's that's not what my community feels like right uh and so we came here and 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 i intentionally brought different members of the congressional black caucus that were leading on the different things that our community needed address right whether it was um you know addressing the uh, school to prison pipeline and and we 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 visited um the juvenile center and you know we we talked to kids who were just who just exited, some who are still in there, some who exited. We talked to, uh, we visited different schools. We talked to young people who felt like they were being pushed out and 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 experiencing punitive punishment. We introduced the PUSH Act out of that. Mm. Um, we had a, a roundtable at the University of Minnesota with leaders that were addressing maternal mortality rates. Uh, and, you know, we created the Momnibus mm-hmm. um, out of that, which is a, a package of 12 pieces of legislation. Uh, and so like our whole idea and Fudge was part of it, who's now the secretary of housing. Um, and since she's become the secretary of housing, she's come four times because she That's remembers fantastic. the challenges we had in, in housing, but also the, the opportunities. Um, because we also have a, a rich nonprofit history mm-hmm. uh, in in, um, in in Minneapolis and, and Minnesota, so so it, it, I I think that there 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 is a lot to celebrate about you know the work that that has been done um, by so many of us, but there's still a lot more work to do. And you know I I am always like that person that's in the room, like please don't forget Minneapolis right. and some of the challenges we have. So if I play off this energy, my last question for you is going to be, um, maybe I have a two-part question, take the part you want, but um, when you think about your legacy of, of leadership that you want to leave, what does that look like? Which I think factors into my next question around what are you hopeful for? Yeah. Um, it was, you know, if, if, if you asked me this question like six months ago, I, I, my standard answer was like, I don't think about my legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes different the older you get. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think something happened recently, okay. um, you know, especially I think in the, in the last couple of election cycles um, where so many people um, who have been elected as firsts 
and and many of them um, have been people that I was told that if I didn't change the way in which I was uh, leading, that it would make it harder um, for others to to walk in, mm. you know, in my footsteps. Um, and and the fact that it's been the opposite is is both, I think, the that legacy of like I didn't just break a glass ceiling, but I made it easy for so many people to ignore the naysayers and to just go for it and to know that regardless of how hard it has been for me, it if I could handle it, mm-hmm. they can too. Mm-hmm. We all can. Right. It is like no matter no matter how daunting this work looks like, no matter how, you know, we, we stare down fascism, no matter how much, you know, there are death threats to, um, you know, immigrants who are being elected into office, women who are being elected into office, you know, people of color that are being elected into office. We, we can we can still move forward and, and see ourselves be represented um, and and I think that's also to answer your second mm-hmm. question, the thing that gives me hope. Yeah. Right. Like, I now represent a district that half of its mayors are women, which is not what it was when I started. Right. I started as a first legislator, um, Somali legislator in this country. Um, there is sixteen of us right now oh, wow. across the country. Okay. Um, you know, we have a, a young mayor that that's like barely 20 um, in in St. Louis Park, who's Somali. We have a mayor in uh, Seattle. In, and we, like there's all of these ways in which people were constantly like, you need to dim your light in order for others to be able to, you know, be given these opportunities. And I was like, I was never given an opportunity. I took it. And the model, what I want to model for others is not to wait for an opportunity to be given to them, it's to fight for those opportunities because it just gets easier and easier and easier when there's there has been people who have fought harder and harder and um, and I'm so glad for all the shoulders we stand on that has made it mm-hmm. that that had to fight and yeah. and, and get killed and like harder. yes yeah. right yeah. Um, and 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 it's it was easier for us. And then like, yeah, we take the, the punches now because it's going to be easier for the next generation That's to right. come. Um, and so just passing on that baton, I think uh, really is, is, is something that, that drives me every single day that I get excited about. Good. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for your attentiveness uh, to this community. Politics is a challenging place. We know that, um, we all have uh, the things that we care about and we all take political positions um, and everyone doesn't agree with you. Yeah. Course. Um, on everything. I think it's really hard to disagree. It would disagree be really with, weird. I represent yeah, right? seven over 700,000 <laughs> yeah. people. That would be that would yeah. be something. <laughs> yeah, I think if you disagree on everything, I think there's an opportunity for growth there. Yes. But I, I mean, I just think that it's a complicated yes. political time. Yes. And, um, you know, to step into that space uh, certainly demands a, a level of, of foresight and courage and boldness. And so thank you for that. Thank you for being on uh, Conversations with Shonda. I Um, appreciate your time and your thoughtful responses. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for 
being that example for so many of us on what it looked like to be a gracious leader. That's a wrap. (laughs) (laughs) To explore more insightful conversations and stay updated on Shonda Smith Baker's work, visit our new website at smithbaker.co.